Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like patience, tramps and height. Oh, I well, actually want to do all of those, Sam. I, I particularly <laughs> the... I'm impatient to the history of patience. Um, yeah, definitely. I'm definitely. definitely. All right, or we could do singing, pinging and winging it. Slinging, bringing, and clinging. I love the idea of winging it, just sort of blagging. Uh, history of blagging. Um, yeah, well, pa- patience is also to do with waiting. Uh, history of ooh. waiting and waiting rooms is is genuinely ooh. fascinating. Ooh, you that, can do um, chalk that up, chalk that up. Waiting rooms. Yeah, well, waiting. I think rather waiting. than waiting rooms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we can do waiting rooms as part of no, waiting. I love um, that. And also, doctors' it, waiting rooms, could, uh, to airports, uh, travelly oh, things. We should also mm. do the history of the queue. It's a yes, partic- yeah, that's a pretty good idea. It's a particularly British thing that you know the, the sort of politeness of queuing. Uh, yeah. it, it's, it's where you get real sort of cultural conflict. There's nothing more irate than a than a British person who's had somebody jump the queue on them. Well, no, we I do mean, queue I... in this country. Um, <laughs> also, I like the idea of the history of clinging, which for me is about the history of childhood. Uh, oh yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> See where I'm going with that? Lovely, Very lovely. Good. Uh, but also winging it, I think that I think that's uh, just sort of laziness, a sort of Boris Johnson approach to life, you know, mm-hmm. wonderfully clever, Blanky. but but really quite lazy, um, <laughs> um, you know, uh, yeah, dreadful, and and you know, ah, the tumbleweed rolls there as we resist saying any more. <laughs> Because we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, that the history of bananas is in fact all about the quest for the lost perfect tasting banana, the development of the Cavendish banana at Chatsworth House, and the first time a banana appeared in a British shop window. It's also all about banana republics, colonialism, and the United Fruit Company in the 1928 Colombian massacre of workers and the 1954 coup that saw the overthrow of the democratically elected president of Guatemala, Jacobo Arbenz. Who knew? 
Or yeah, the CIA. Who oh. knew the banana was so linked with the I CIA know. and coups? Yeah, I, I thought that was fascinating. I, I was talking. One of my colleagues listened to the thing on the the episode on the history of bananas, and he said the university I worked at before, somebody was actually a clever scientist was actually developing a banana that was resistant to the to the um to the fungi that that got the Cavendish banana. Um, ah. Or was it the other banana? I can't rem- I can't remember. These things go in and out. But it was somebody who was who was trying to who was trying to invent or develop or whatever you, uh, I don't know grow or whatever you do with bananary things uh, was trying to grow a, a banana that was resistant uh, to um, to disease. Uh, who or who knew that the history of monkeys is in fact all about Shakespeare and the infinite monkey theorem? It's about monkeys and dogs in space and Dutch art, and it's also about the history of racism and ancient Egypt. As so much is Sam Willis. Did you know any of that? Did you do you remember um, any of this? The last episode, you couldn't remember a thing. And... <laughs> no, yeah, no, that's true. I do remember the monkeys. Monkeys are genuinely interesting. Let me introduce my fellow presenter. Let me say that if history were a triangle. This man would be the man who organised it for you so that it made sense, sifting and scheduling it, hanging it in order, blue, white, red, blue, white, red, blue, white, red, until history itself had been spectacularly bunted in a triumph of bunting achievement worthy of a place in history itself, always ready to rebunt should the bunting become at any point debunted. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. Here's James Daybell, the flag-waving commissar of history itself. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. You're almost trespassing on uh, what I've written about you, because you may well be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode. Well, let's just say that if he were a bunting-related historian, he'd only be the jubilee bunting of history, chief waver of flags in the historical world of signalling the penance on his history historical ship of fortune would fly resplendent in the breeze so legendary is his historical prowess that they hoist his colours up the Senate <laughs> House flagpole whenever he's in the IHR. That is the, there's a slight note here, that means the Institute of Historical Research for anyone who's either not an academic or lives outside of central London. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer himself, Dr Sam Willis. Hello everyone, um... Uh, Hello, Senate House, everyone. one of the most, I think, architecturally interesting buildings in London as well. Just behind mm. the British Museum there, and you should all go and look at it, it's really cool. Um, we are doing the history of bunting, this is part two of our little uh, mini-series we are doing inspired by the Queen's Jubilee. Uh, probably a, a short history of bunting, I suspect. Are you, um, a, are you a bunting a... person, Sam? No, it makes me feel a little sick. Do you know, I'm we as you can imagine, uh, if you've listened to our any of our episodes, uh, the Shea Daybell, we're mad on bunting. And it's a yeah. birthday weekend here, so bunting will indeed be flying around the house and my daughters will be in full decoration mode with bunting birthday bunting aplenty. But I Well I, birthday I was... bunting's fine, sorry. I was um, oh. I it's the it's the, the um the, the kind of the nationalism Ooh, union gosh, jacket yes, stuff can't be that having, I'm, I'm can't not be having so, that. No, 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 um, no. So, so convinced of. Um, but it's actually interesting thinking about what what defines what what is bunting really? Because I've been giving this a little bit of thought to try and work out what I was going to talk about, and it's it's not a flag, but it's obviously got an important role to play in the history of flags and symbolism and colours. Um, 
but uh, often in the UK, so it's not the Union Jack, but it's kind of reminiscent of it. It evokes it somehow. So there's often lots of red, white and blue. Sometimes it very much is a Union Jack bunting, but other times it's not. But the whole kind of impression you get is you can't get away from nationalism and the associations with Britishness. We've also seen a lot of Ukrainian bunting around. So not just Ukrainian flags. I've seen a lot of the yellow and the blue bunting. So it's more it's more decorative than flag waving. And uh, and it's kind of more permanent, isn't it? Because it doesn't require someone to stand there with a flag to wave it. So you can hang it up and it stays there. It allows it allows for a certain degree of nationalistic flag waving without requiring the person to do it. So that means you need to have fewer people to achieve in what you might describe as a greater effect. It's also it's repeatable because you can have smoke so many small ones, which means you can cover a larger area. The point of all this, as I'm trying to make, is it's a really brilliant propaganda tool. It's a very useful way of mass communication. I mean, I've been particularly thinking about this in terms of the Queen's Jubilee and all of the Union Jacks. But of course, you get non-flaggy bunting, James, just like you were talking about with your, your birthday there. And that's you get a lot of those with birthdays, but also with summer fates this time of year in the UK. So lots of villages or even, um, you know, small areas of, of larger cities get together as a community, might have a street party, might have some kind of fate. And often... It, it, things are decorated, buildings are decorated, trees are decorated, they're decorated on the outside. And particularly if you get to do kind of maypole dancing, real English rural village fates, what you've got is a lot of bunting, right? Bear with me because it's actually really interesting. The point about it is, is that the bunting has to be made or manufactured. And if you look at modern bunting, it's all been made in um, uh, factories. So it's, there's none of the the handmadeness of it which would have existed before. And James and I have actually done a very interesting episode on the history of needlework and that, that how it tells you a great deal about the cultures in which um, the needlework is created. It really made me think about um, uh, the, the wonderful American tradition of quilt making. And I suspect there is an English history of bunting making which is similar. But the point about this is, of course, is what you're doing is you're making you're taking man-made decorations whether they're made in factories or by hand and you're using them to decorate the natural world right and that's the opposite of what we do at christmas where we bring the natural world inside our houses so you have trees inside you have ivy inside you have holly inside but with bunting in the summer it's the opposite so it's humanity bringing their um uh, manufactured handmade things outside to put on the natural world which I thought was really interesting um, so it's the opposite of the pagan rituals the very ancient rituals of the natural world it feels very industrial revolution James to me it feels very uh, very modern very 19th century and very 20th century but I'll talk about this later because it's actually, there's actually some uh, really interesting 18th century stuff there but um, as we talk about bunting do bear in mind um, you know, where has it come from? Where has it been made? Uh, you need a lot of it. That means there are going to be a lot of people sitting down in factories making it together. 
Um, and uh, I, I thought it was actually a really interesting window into the history of industrialisation and mass production. Oh, really interesting, Sam. I know <laughs> Surprisingly you're... so, isn't it? No, the more no, I was brilliant. talking, I was brilliant. like, wow, this is great. Brilliant. And there's, there's also a really interesting history about flags in general and the meanings sure. of flags. Yeah. And I think we should we should do another episode, particularly on flags. Uh, because I think there's all sorts of things about associated with nationalism, the sort of raising of the flag, dropping of the flag, flag at half-mast, all of those kinds of things that we can explore there. But picking up on your point about the manufacture, I think, yeah, absolutely. Many of the flag, many of the, much of the bunting that you see nowadays that's sold in shops tends to be... Yeah, chemically produced so it's plastic uh, yeah. which actually is 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 appalling for the environment uh, one of the things the it struck me during the queen's jubilee um, just how how popular bunting was and you couldn't get it for love nor money in the last couple yeah. of weeks coming up to street parties when you're wanting to put everything out but i think it can be traced back that kind of manufacture of sort of worsted wool fabric um, which is the, what the earlier bunting is can be trace back to the turn of the 17th century um it can also then be connected to the navy and i wondered whether you were going to talk about the the kind of pennants that you have on on ships and the communication uh there but also well, actually do you know what let me just jump can i just jump in there do jump that in. actually is interesting because um with the navy and ships and flag well, the navy generally any ships and flags there is a there's obviously a history of using flags consciously to communicate so bunting yeah. suggests an imp- an impression of nationalism is what we've been having with the Queen and, yeah. and love for the monarchy. Um, but with the ships, you've got very specific uh, uh, signalling and, and, and sentences and phrases being commuted, apart from when you have um, naval galas. So you have kind of uh, celebrations of naval power in the 18th and the 19th century, often witnessed by uh, by the monarch or close relatives of the monarch. And then ships are decorated Hmm. Uh, in in a way that is fundamentally different. So so they they have bunting, and I haven't thought about this before, but there is something really maritime and naval about these triangular flags. And if you look at um, sort of wonderful oil paintings of coronations or jubilees or naval jubilees, whatever it might be, whether it's a celebration of naval power or it's the Navy celebrating a royal birthday or, or an event... Um, the one thing you will see everywhere is bunting because ships are literally perfect for flying bunting. It's like they've been made for bunting. They've got high points at the tops of masts and all of the masts are connected by stays which connect each other. So um, it all pre-exists. It's already there and you've got lots of ropes you could just run your bunting up. And so in the blink of an eye, you can turn a um, you turn a ship into a, into a, a, a sailing, I mean, a sort of decorated you know a, a piece of decoration basically and the whole thing becomes a piece of decoration and really interesting stuff yeah oh you're a maritime man to the very core sam willis i knew that would get your your historical <laughs> juices flowing i knew you'd have interesting stuff to say about that uh, it, there was a lot there was a lot i was reading about that that was utterly fascinating and then and also about the history of signals and flags which which is also connected to the maritime world but i wanted to talk a little bit about manufacture of bunting in the united states because there's a big tradition of hanging bunting and unhanging bunting particularly in the southern states um, in America today. Uh, And this has a long history um, and it's connected to patriotism. And I think we're going to go on and talk about 
you some of the sort of problems of this, uh, dependent on what flag that you, what flags, what kind of bunting you hang out. But there is this tradition of hanging it out between Memorial Day and, and say, between bringing it down on, on Labor Day. And it's very sort of patriotic um, bunting. So it's red, white and blue, the American flag. And it's all about patriotism and loyalty to the country. Um, and there is a really interesting history that is connected to um, American flag making um, and the foundation of the United States Bunting Company in March 1865 by one General Benjamin F. Butler, uh, who incorporated this. So if we think prior to the Civil War, uh, American flag makers were largely importing bunting from other countries. So they were importing English bunting. And then in March 1865, we had the incorporation of the United States Bunting Company um, and a factory is set up and they start producing American flags. And um, Butler has ties with people in Congress and military officials and he starts getting really rich contracts with, with his company, government contracts, to start producing American flags. And his agent, a guy called, listen to this name, DeWitt C. Farrington, isn't that wonderful, mm, one of his agents, in 1866, he had a, they had a, an, a really large American flag produced, which is 21 feet by 12 feet, and they presented this to the Senate uh, that was supposed to fly above the US Capitol. And this was supposedly the first flag of American you know, American-made that was put up over the Capitol building. And it's thought that this uh, was auctioned at Sotheby's and estimate, the estimated value was between uh, 50000 and 70000 US dollars. So an awful, an awful lot of money. Um, there's a really interesting... I came across a really interesting article on this uh, which talks about the way in which Butler and his managers are really skilled at getting government contracts and the way in which the manufacture of this kind of bunting really explodes throughout the um, the the sort of latter decades of the 19th century and production is really ramped up. Um, you've got 450 men and women working on five sets of cards, 5,000 spindles, 220 looms they're using 3000 pounds of wool per day to wow. produce this so it's an it's an incredible industry now what I, where i wanted to take this though is and i know you want to talk just, about sorry, this as well can i just say something yes <laughs> um you know it's easy for us to forget or imagine ourselves in a world where there isn't instagram and there aren't just like the, the easiest ways of taking photos or making visual uh, um, or communicating visually with 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 imagery and with symbols and stuff. So going back there, like if you if you went to back in the day, you went somewhere in eighteen sixty five or whatever it is, and there was a there was a stage and there was a politician standing there, and the whole thing was decorated with bunting. It would be an extraordinary assault on the visual senses. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. and they were relying on that as a message to communicate and something you wouldn't forget. It was someone they were demonstrating power. You got this many people producing the bunting they need um, and so they're relying on you know the the impression of wealth and control and and the ability to 
to control manufacture and kind of get access to other people, to leave an impression which will essentially buy your vote. So incredibly powerful stuff. Um, and I'll talk a bit later about it. They did it in the French Revolution. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. As well, I think, I think, I think the visual nature of that, I think, is really, really. Uh, important. I'm thinking about though, you know, I'm thinking about the the 16th century and the way in which the Tudors would have made use of that kind of visual imagery as well. Mm. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm thinking of the sort of heraldic flags that one would have had, the heraldic banners, and and the way in which that would have communicated, you know, particular messages. But to stay to stay in the US, one of the things that I wanted to sort of go on from there, sort of making a slight leap, uh, but is to talk about the use of the Confederate flag. So, you know, when we're hanging out bunting and, and you know, as we know, this is a really contested flag and always and always has been. Uh, and I read a really lovely piece in The Conversation, which if you don't read The Conversation, The Conversation is an open source, uh, really easy to access um, I suppose it's a it's a sort of it's a thought it produces thought pieces so largely written by academics who are prompted by things that are happening today and they're trying to connect their research to real world issues and I read a brilliant um, piece here by Claire Corbold who's associate professor Deakin University um, she's been funded by the Australian research council and she's really sort of dug into the history of the confederate flag because um, australia was appalled or people in australia were appalled by the use of the confederate flag by uh, some of their soldiers um i think it was in afghanistan uh in 2012 uh holding it up um and and they you know and they were you know, really, um, you know, people didn't know what the history of the flag was. And what she does in that article is unpack precisely what this flag means, that it is basically, and to, to, to sort of quote her, her article here, the flag has long symbolised defiance, rebellion, an ideal of whiteness and the social and political exclusion of non-white people, in a word, racism. Um, and you were you you were going to talk a little bit about the Confederate flag, Sam, weren't you? So I don't want to sort of trample on your on what you were going to say. No worries at all. No, I mean I I just wanted to say that it's actually very relevant to the history of bunting. So I think it it, it is the second only to the Union Jack. So yep. there are lots of there's lots of bunting. You you often see uh, links to the Confederacy, um, not just in very clear displays of the Confederate flag, but in things that evoke it. In the same way, you get things that evoke 
the um, the Union Jack without it actually being the Union Jack. And that's very, very similar in the way that um, support is shown to what the Confederate flag or its identity with those southern states who formed the, you know, the breakaway republic um, during the American Civil War. So, that, you know, there are there are uh, 11 of them. South Carolina, Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Texas, Virginia, Arkansas, Tennessee, North Carolina, uh, and also Kentucky and Missouri were added to those um, during the time they were occupied by the army. Um, so I think the Confederate flag is actually incredibly relevant to the history of bunting. But um, it, it also makes a clear point that the, the Confederate flag we know, right, and I, I'm not ashamed to say this, but I do know this because it was on the General Lee on the, the roof of the car on the Dukes of Hazard. That's how I first came across it. Um, but I suppose more recently I've seen it being marched through, uh, you know, the halls of Congress during the January insurrection. But you'll all be uh, familiar with it. It's um, it's a, it's red, red, red background with uh, blue diagonal crosses with white stars um, leading up through each of the blue diagonal crosses. That it's not right. It's not the flag of the Confederacy. This is the really interesting thing. It's the battle flag of the Confederacy. It is quite specifically linked with military power and with domination uh, on behalf of the Confederate states who were campaigning to keep their established lives and economy going, which was a slave-driven economy. There were actually three different uh, national flags of the Confederacy. They're all subtly different. So the first national flag is called the Stars and the Bars. Um, so if you imagine a rectangle in the top left-hand corner, you've got a blue square with white um, stars in a circle and then the rest of it is divided into uh, uh, it's a, a red horizontal stripe a white horizontal stripe and then another red horizontal stripe uh, the second national flag was a completely white flag apart from the top left hand corner where if you imagine the um, the battle flag I started off talking about is in the top left hand corner and then the third national flag is that flag so white background the battle flag in the top left hand corner but then with a right um, on, on the right hand side, a red uh, uh, vertical stripe. Uh, the naval jack, I should say, was also the um, it was also the same as the battle flag. So all of the the bunting which we see associated with the Confederacy is specifically associated with the battle flag of the Confederacy, and it's quite interesting that they when they actually kind of they formed a committee to select a flag, which I thought it was fascinating. And um, they got an enormous number of flag designs in, everything from um, school kids, school girls particularly, to kind of 80-year-olds who wanted uh, to put in their pennyworth about what the Confederate flag should look like. It broadly split into two areas. Those who thought that it should be um, you know, something similar to the, the Stars and the Stripes and others thought it should be completely different uh, out of principle. Um, but the, the, those designs, they're a wonderful, they're elaborate, they're complicated, they're um, uh, fantastical, I think is a word to say about some of them. But um, I think we'll leave it there, James. The, the point about the, the Confederate flag then is that, um, yes, it's very important, I think, in the history of bunting, very much like the Union Jack. Uh, but it does specifically relate to the battle flag of the Confederacy. It's those colours again, though. I'll just finish talking about this, actually. The, the, it's, it's all red, white and blue. And one of the interesting things about seeing the 
red, white and blue in all of the streets in the UK recently. Um, obviously very reminiscent of the Union Jack. But if you kind of half shut one eye and you just get the impression of red, white and blueness, and then you look at any of the contemporary drawings and sketches of what was going on in Paris in, mm. say, 1794, yep. the yep. height of the Reign of Terror, it's exactly the same. Yep. Um, and so I really, really enjoyed um, this weird kind of link between democracy, between our, our, our I think is a crazy monarchy, um, and uh, the revolution of Paris where they killed their monarch. Um, in the mm. 1790s. I think it is particularly interesting if you, in the UK because, because it was so prevalent, it was so popular. If we held a referendum, right, about whether we should keep or abolish the monarchy, without any shadow of a doubt, everyone would vote to keep the monarchy. So you'd end up with a democratic vote to keep a non-democratic institution. We're, we're very good at irony, the English, aren't we? <laughs> so anyway, I think we what are. you need to do is, is to bear in mind um, the, the, the huge irony that the streets of England, uh, or Britain, I should say, last week, um, celebrating the Queen's Jubilee, remarkably resembled the streets of Paris during the Reign of Terror when they were killing the nobility <laughs> and their kings. <laughs> oh, what an observation. I just, want to return, I just want to return to the Confederate flag a bit because I, I think wonderful sort of descriptions of the, the different kinds of the flag and, and, and meaning. I think the interesting thing is the way in which it becomes politicised, particularly in the 1940s. And this is something that this article that I was talking about refers to um and pre-trump because trump is a sort of big sort of supporter of the flag um and defends it as a symbol of southern pride um it'd be it i think the problem is it, it is so politicized and in the 1940s there's a new the, this is the point the article makes there's a new political party in the south that um that's in opposition to the democratics democratic parties and their stance on civil rights and, and also um, Truman. Um, and they adopt the Confederate battle flag as the party emblem. And, and so what that does is it immediately politicises it, that it is, it's associated with white supremacy, opposition to civil rights, um, intrusion in, into the lives of individuals, and it then becomes... It's used really visibly... Uh, in public state places. So the state of Georgia, for example, they adopt a, a new state flag that incorporates the Confederate flag. Um, in 1961, in South Carolina, they start flying the Confederate flag above the state capitol. You know, so it, it does become a, you know, a real symbol of people to sort of rage against. Um, and there are protests and eventually it is it is these flags are banned uh, in southern carolina um the confederate flag is is moved to the state house's grounds then what happens is a, a white supremacist a guy called dylan roof who endorses the flag uh, he then murders nine black churchgoers in 2015 and then an activist brie newsom uh shimmies up the flagpole um and removes the flag uh, you know as a sort of as a, a gesture of protest um two weeks later um the flag is finally removed for for good so it is a real it, there's a really toxic um really really toxic history 
to it. Uh, and apparently in um, it's been banned by the Sun Comf by NASCAR now. Um, and the Department of Defense um, have basically got rid of it. So it, so you know, who knew that that flags could be so well? I mean, we all knew that flags can be such sort of, <laughs> you know, points of um, you know of conflict. Yeah, um, bunting though, bunting in particular as yes. a, as something that evokes the flag, and it's a, it's kind of a spin off of it. But I think because of its ability to to cover such such huge areas and to, to be seen by so many more people is actually more important. Excellent. Well, I think Wonderful that, stuff. that's about it, Sam. It is. Uh, thank you for listening to our History of Bunting. If you haven't listened to it, do please listen to our History of uh, Street Parties, which we've done as well as part of this uh, Queen's Jubilee um, thought thought exercise, I should call it. Uh, do please... Um, well, we're coming back soon, aren't we, James? What have we decided on snakes and pasties? I think we're doing pasties footprints. and footprints. And I also yeah. think we should do flags. Mm. Yeah. Well, let's wait a bit because we've just done bunting. Okay. We're going to do we're going to do footprints and snakes. Okay. Footprints and pasties and snakes. And pasties and snakes. <laughs> okay, that's all coming your way, guys. Do Excellent. please follow me on Twitter at Dr. Sam Willis. If you're interested in maritime and naval history, do please listen to the Mariners Mirror podcast. It's fantastic. And you can follow me on Twitter at James Dable. You can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. We're also on Instagram and Facebook, so come and check us out there. Check out also our all singing, all dancing website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, where you can find signed copies of our books for sale and you can also see our entire back catalogue and should you so wish to become a patron of Histories of the Unexpected and help us change the way in which people think about the past then you need do no more than to head over to the lovely folks at patreon.com where we have a page but meanwhile I uh, hope you're enjoying this weather although it's probably by the time you listen to this uh, raining uh, if you're in the United <laughs> Kingdom well it's very beautiful here guys thank you all so much for listening be in touch soon cheerio take care guys bye When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.